This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Healthcare in America is expensive and growing. Whether we each experience the cost through insurance premiums, large medical bills, or reduced take-home income, our personal wealth is diluted by the nearly $2 trillion we spend as a nation on healthcare each year. While policymakers and healthcare economists have proffered fixes based on external constraints on prices or services, few have asked the doctors within the system for suggestions on the best path forward toward improvement. As frontline actors in this complex and wildly expensive system, doctors are witness to the distortive incentives that drive costs up, patient and healthcare workers' satisfaction down, and leave medical professionals little opportunity to actively reform their processes. What prescription would a doctor with a thorough knowledge of the system and a passion for reform write to help improve costs while also improving patient health and satisfaction? My guest today is Dr. Marty Macri. Dr. Macri is a surgical oncologist and chief of the Johns Hopkins Islet Transplant Center, a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and a New York Times best-selling author and leading voice for transparency in healthcare. He is the recipient of the 2020 Business Book of the Year Award for The Price We Pay, and he has published over 250 scientific articles on the redesign of healthcare, medical innovation, and vulnerable populations. He has written for The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and USA Today. Dr. Macri will share with us his views on ways to meaningfully improve our healthcare system that focus on realigning incentives to deliver lower cost, better outcomes, and improve satisfaction for patients and members of the healthcare community. When I return, I'll be joined by Dr. Marty Macri. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Dr. Marty Macri, author of The Price We Pay. Welcome to the show, Marty. Great to be with you, Joe. All right. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest. We could probably build a compelling podcast episode from um, much of your work. Uh, You're a a pancreatic surgeon, you're a researcher, you're uh, author of uh, several great books. But I want to focus our conversation today on your most recent book, uh, which won Business Book of the Year. Uh, It's called The Price We Pay. Uh, For me, it brought together many of the themes we cover here on our podcast. So I'd like to start with its broadest theme, which is price transparency. Why did you call your book the price we pay rather than the cost we pay? (laughs) Well, I think that it matters how you frame things. And if, you know, we talk about petroleum futures going up, it doesn't really mean anything. We don't care that much. If we talk about gas prices going up, all of a sudden it's like, wow. So I think we should change the lexicon in healthcare. And that's one of the ways we can fix it. Look, we saw that with the banking industry, right? In the financial crisis. If you call it a credit default swap, instead of you know s- spending somebody else's money that you know, um, it's all of a sudden now it's debt. So it's it matters, and I think if also if we stop talking about oh I didn't have to pay my insurance company paid or I didn't pay Medicare paid, I mean we're all paying and that really adds up. And I think healthcare costs and the business of medicine is very nebulous to a lot of people, sort of like the financial um, banking games where. But it is possible, I think, to explain it in a way that somebody can leave 
at the end of reading a book and feel like, ah, now I understand the business of medicine at many different levels, drug pricing, hospital bills, middlemen, the waste, uh, inappropriate care. And ultimately, I left very optimistic writing that book about the incredible disruption that's happening right now. Sure. Um, uh, you touched on a lot of the, the themes of the book right there. Um, now you're at the uh, prestigious uh, Johns Hopkins Medical Center. We're here in Boston. We have a few good hospitals up our way as well. Um, a lot of smart people in those hospitals. Why is it that if I'm going to go for a procedure, um, I can not find out ahead of time what that procedure is going to cost me? It's nuts, right? I mean, it's just, Joe, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm one of those people, right? I could tell you 5,000 facts about the pancreas, uh, which is my clinical specialty, except for one fact, and that is the price of the operation to take out the head of the pancreas, something I've done many times throughout my career. And I think we, the main message I took away doing the research for the book is that we have very good people in healthcare at every level, even the management, the executives, but we're, they're working in a terrible system, one where there's this crazy game of inflating prices for the purpose of offering secret discounts at that neg negotiating table every year or every two years when the hospitals and insurance companies renegotiate their contracts. And so that game is, is the sport. And it's, you know, hey, we'll give you a 40% discount this year. Last year it was 38. We're going to increase that to 40% as a hospital. And then the bills are dialed up 3%. So the discount goes uh, uh, further by 2%, but the bills are dialed up by 3%. Well, then the guy who did that deal gets patted on the back and congratulations, you're going to be the vice president of the health system for all this money you're making. It's a crazy game. It's a, it's, it's a crazy game. And this is not a game that our current generation designed. This is a game we inherited. We have good people working in healthcare today, but we've got to change that system. And I think that's why we have as doctors just been focused on taking care of the patients, kind of blocked out all those money games. And now we're in an awkward position of not even being able to itemize our costs or give people answers to basic questions about elective uh, medical care. We're not talking about getting shot and coming to the emergency room and producing a price. We're talking yeah. about elective care. That's right. The, the elastic demand for a, someone shot in the chest is is infinite. We they, they need that, uh, but we're talking about everything else in the, in the system. Now we're a, a pioneer institute. We're a think tank, uh, but primarily we advocate for free market solutions to a lot of public policy uh, challenges. Now I can in, uh, anticipate listeners saying, "Well, look, okay, free markets are good if we're talking about uh, fishing poles or breakfast cereal, uh, but you know, healthcare is fundamentally different. It's a different thing." You touched on it a little bit when you talk about being shot in the chest. Certainly that behaves differently, but the rest at the margin, you know, those things that we, we can choose. Um, is healthcare different um, or are there examples that where um, market discipline is imposed on healthcare choices? Both. So there are things that you are uniquely different. Namely, if you are not paying, you might have, if anything, an incentive to choose the more expensive service, right? And, but that is something that is um, addressed because of proxy shoppers of healthcare. That is health plans, employers who are shopping on your behalf, they're shopping based on pricing to create networks. Um, I would say it's very similar to other markets in the sense that um, the reason for price gouging and predatory billing 
is that there is no transparency up front, even when people ask the question, and that enables all this bad behavior. Look, the fundamental problem in healthcare is that we have non-competitive markets. And when you see that as a consumer or a policymaker, the temptation is to create rules to restrict that bad behavior. But the real transformation is when you convert that non-competitive market to a competitive market, and it's happening. It's happening around the country. It's happening with certain services. Look at in healthcare, we have medical inflation that outpaces the rest of inflation, except for three areas of medicine, LASIK eye surgery, cosmetic procedures, infertility treatments. Why? Because that's an entirely transparent marketplace. They have Their prices have gone down over time. So um, I think it's useful to recognize that when we go to buy an airplane ticket on a kayak or Expedia, if there were no prices on there and the airline said, we, we can't give you a price, we don't know if the flight's gonna be delayed or they're gonna have to take a longer route or the pilot may have to experience turbulence and work harder and perform more services because they're flying you know, more difficult and therefore would have to bill more RVUs at the end of their flight. We don't know if you're gonna consume a beverage, right? And so that would be a completely dysfunctional marketplace. That's a non-competitive marketplace. What would happen would be that people would be getting gouged all across America after they take their flight. They'd be getting surprise bills for consuming a Diet Coke. And you'd have complete outrage and a loss of, the, of a public trust in an institution. That's what we have in healthcare today. Airlines have built in that predictable risk into the pricing model. That's something that has not been required of us as doctors and hospitals in the past. We haven't done it for good reasons. We focused on taking care of patients, but now we've got to do it because price gouging and predatory billing is becoming rampant and it's hurting the public trust. 64% of Americans say they've delayed or avoided medical care for fear of the bill. And that's why there's broad consensus on this issue. A Harvard study found that 88% of Americans want to see price transparency for shoppable services in healthcare. Why wouldn't you? Indeed, why wouldn't you? I want to go a step uh, further on price. Uh, you did some analysis. Uh, I'm not sure it was entirely all your group, but uh, talked about um, some of the procedures like a, a heart surgery that uh, you shopped around. You said, okay, over here, the, the procedure is, is X. And over there, uh, uh, the procedure costs 20X. Now, those of us in Boston say, well, you know, you, you know, if you want to go to a good hospital, it's going to cost you. Um, but what you found... Uh, um, more than that was there seemed to be no correlation between the expensive procedure and the uh, less expensive procedure as far as quality of outcomes. Can, can you say more about that? Yeah, that's funny. And, you know, every hospital thinks that they are way above the pack in terms of their quality, right? And every hospital perceives that they do more charity care and take care of more uninsured than every other hospital uh, in, in the uh, area. And the reality is that our study which was a follow-up of a University of Iowa study looking at a massive tenfold difference in the price of standard cabbage surgery. That's a very standardized procedure in America. And there was this massive price variation for the, and that was only for the 50% of hospitals that would produce a price. Others were like the airlines that told you, we, we can't give you a price for the flight. Of the many hospitals that gave a price, there was no correlation between the price and the quality of that standard cabbage procedure, which if you know healthcare, if you know medicine, 
the quality measurement registry for standard cabbage heart surgery is the most mature in all of medicine. And so that is very, those are very good um, publicly reported outcomes. There's a database, it's, uh, it's terrific data on quality. No correlation. Matter of fact, some of the best hospitals also were some of the lowest priced hospitals. If you look at the price to deliver a baby in Boston, it ranges from 6,000 to 31,000 at the time that I wrote the book. Uh, in New York, it ranges from 7,000 to 70,000 um, at the time I wrote the book. And there's been since a uh, major publication, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, said the same thing, found the same thing a year later. So um, that's the, those are the money games that right now are costing Americans a lot because it gets passed through insurance premiums in the form of directly pulling money invisibly before you even see it from your earnings. This comes from the earnings of American workers. And it's the reason why we're not competitive overseas in a lot of businesses. And it's the reason why uh, wage growth has been stagnant in some industries. Indeed, wage growth has been stagnant, but uh, benefit growth hasn't. That's where this hidden cost is being uh, absorbed by the system. Uh, I think, again, we don't see that. Uh, essentially, if, if, if there's no correlation between price and quality, uh, wouldn't it behoove a, a hospital that is producing great results as measured by an objective standard and at a good price? Why wouldn't a hospital like that, in a sense, um, publish its, its value and use it as a competitive advantage, particularly, and I'm thinking about uh, business owners who are, you know, among the largest costs of their running their operation is the cost of uh, healthcare for their, for their patients or for their patient, for their employees. Why, why wouldn't uh, uh, something like this break out where the hospital says em employers hire us? <laughs> well, first of all, I've asked hospitals the same thing, Joe. I've said, Look, you, you're a great hospital. You've got good prices. I've looked at the prices in nationally. You've got great prices. Put those prices out there in the public. Put them in the open market. I'd love to see competition. And invariably, the hospitals come back to me and they say, Marty, we'd love to, but we can't because our insurance companies have a gag restriction a non-disclosed clause in our insurance contract that we're not allowed to disclose prices publicly. And then we're like, wait a minute, these are good people. Well, how is it? You know, it's like even the insurance companies, I mean, with them, they're good people too. And then you realize like the lawyers to get this put in there. And why would you want as an insurance company, those discounts not to be public information because companies like market dominance. And um, the, it wouldn't be there if it were not for a profit. For a, um, a, so you would argue, hey, what about a hospital? Can't they just, like a big hospital, just buck the trend and say, screw it, we're not going to sign this non-disclosure. We're going to get more business by putting it. And this is where healthcare is a little different. People will go down to the street to their local hospital, and a certain portion will not shop. And as long as they can charge more, um, there's no financial alignment to do that. So you could, you could say, uh, why not just put your prices out there on the market and get more business? And what we're starting to see right now is some of those companies do that and win. Others are playing the game that's been increasing over the last seven years, and that is a game, and I'm going to tell you exactly what this game is. Go out of insurance set a super high sticker price 
and hope that some sucker falls for it. That is the crazy game that has defined modern medicine, and it's a disgrace. And it's happening with labs. They go out of insurance. They charge you a second, separate surprise bill. It's crazy high. Some sucker is going to fall for it. Uh, imaging, um, CTs, MRIs, physician groups going out of hospital network, air ambulance you know, companies. I was saying, hey, we don't take any insurance. We're just going to send you our bill. And guess what? Um, it's five times higher than what, uh, you know, any insurance company would pay and some suckers fall for it. And I say sucker, it's not, it's not their fault. They're doing what they get a bill. They, they feel bad. This was a nice, you know, person who took care of them. And this is the crazy game. And what's happening is private equity is coming along, buying these companies that bill out of insurance, jacking up that price even a little further, buying multiple groups to get monopoly power on pricing. And it's a very bad trend right now. The solution is what we're trying to do with Sesame Care. And that is we're getting providers, hospitals, imaging centers to post prices on an open market and allow people to shop for care. There's a couple of platforms doing this for employers. They're acting as intermediaries. We're seeing large businesses do direct contracts with hospitals, bypassing insurance altogether. So there's some really good stuff that's happening right now. I don't want you to have to go take an antidepressant from learning <laughs> some of this or go buy some Ben and Jerry's for some emotional eating after we're done. Well, I, um, I appreciate you uh, covering so much ground. Um, you, you are talking broadly about systems, about hospitals, about insurance companies, and perhaps bad actors, uh, uh, private equity. Uh, but let's not leave the uh, doctors uh, off the hook. In, I think largely the uh, the public sees doctors as uh, saints with white coats on, and 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 in large, you, you cover this. You say there's a lot of trust going on, and as there should be. The, this is a, it's a special calling, uh, but you do talk about um, the power of doctors to uh, manipulate the way their uh, patients decide the nudge, things. Yeah, the gentle nudge. Uh, share with our listeners uh, how uh, it, it surprised me. If any of the statements you remarked would nudge me, but share with our listeners what what's a doctor nudge. Well, first of all. Uh, I love being a doctor. Most doctors do the right thing or always try to. But there are certain pockets of medicine where these nudges are manipulative and they're well known to occur. And sometimes they're rampant. For example, uh, C-sections. If you tell a woman anywhere in the world who's in labor, this phrase, <clears throat> you know, I think the C-section might be safer for the baby. 100% of them are going to say, go do that C-section now, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a nudge, which sometimes is accurate and sometimes is not accurate. And, and so when you see for low-risk delivery, some doctors with a C-section rate of 61% and others with a C-section rate of 19%, both with um, no difference in outcomes, you've got to wonder, hey, um, is this appropriate? We've never been talking about the appropriateness of care in the world of quality measurement in healthcare. And that's where my research team at Johns Hopkins has really pioneered this new field of, can we create a generation of quality measures that looks at a practice pattern? Let's get away from pre-authorization and peer-to-peer -peer barriers that are put in front of us doctors that we hate. We hate that stuff. It just slows us down. It's, it hurts patients. Let's get away from pre-authorizations and peer-to-peers, and let's instead look in big data at practice patterns. Is there a pattern that we can identify as a pattern of concern, like a C-section rate of 61%? And then can we devote all those resources 
to trying to take a closer look at those outliers. It turns out the outliers are sucking a lot of money out of the system. And so we've put together a lot of appropriateness measures. They live in a consortium called Global Appropriateness Measures. And it's a, um, and there's a couple other groups working on this now. It is a new way to look at the appropriateness of care because uh, a lot of doctors right now are speaking up on the excessive medical care in today's generation. We live in an era of the medicalization of ordinary life. We need to start talking about treating more patients with diabetes with cooking classes instead of just throwing insulin at them. Maybe more patients with back pain need physical therapy and ice than surgery and opioids. Maybe people with high blood pressure need a conversation about their sleep patterns uh, rather than just throw antihypertensives at them. Maybe we can talk about stress management and other things like meditation. Maybe we can work with a lot of non-medical professionals to try to address the underlying causes of illness. And so in the book, The Price We Pay, I was privileged to profile some of these groups that are now doing that, basically rejecting the status quo system of primary care, which is so broken. You know, you come in and it's like, you know, eat better, exercise more. And then you come back in six months and it's like, you bad non-compliant patient, right? And as uh, Rashika Fernandopoul taught me when I profiled him in the book, The Price We Pay was, the hard part about chronic disease is not telling people what to do, it's helping them do it. Mm -hmm. And they've got now so many partners that come alongside folks with chronic illness and they're winning. They're uh, getting people healthier and lowering healthcare costs and it's beautiful. So I want to. We talked about um, uh, some of the innovations uh, and the potential power of of price um, uh, transparency. You also talked the power of information transparency. I want to build on the the C section concept in that. Um, uh, in your book, you talk about telling a, a, a doctor group, you know, we do too many C-sections. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I guess suppose perhaps there's too many C-sections in the world. And then they, you provided the data to the group and said, okay, actually, Bob's doing a lot more uh, C-sections. And, and then you go a step further and say, so for some mysterious reason, we do way more C-sections on Friday afternoon than we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. This feedback, and I don't know if you would call it peer pressure or just the pure embarrassment of being an outlier of one who does too many or one who does too many on a Friday afternoon. Uh, What can you say about the power of information to constrain, uh, let's say, um, unproductive uh, behavior? (laughs) Well, yeah, that was a funny moment when (laughs) um, the head of this OB department Um, talked to this outlier OB doctor doing a lot of C-sections who, who argued that he was he had a lot of very high-risk pregnancies. That's why it was he had a higher rate. And then the chair pointed out that they were mostly on Fridays when his C-sections, <laughs> it's like, were they all, all the quadruple deliveries were coming in on Fridays? But no, there is a positive peer pressure to benchmarking. And so what we do with these appropriateness measures as a physician, I can tell you, you win more bees with honey than you do with fire. And I don't believe in shaming people and trying to disgrace them or even penalizing them uh, with payment reform. Let's start by sharing with them where they stand on the bell curve. Some doctors are outliers with good intentions. I myself was an outlier with good intentions with opioid prescribing for most of my career. I can't believe it. I feel terrible. I gave opioids to patients who should have never had them or some who needed them after surgery, I gave them more than they needed. With good intentions, arguably, and bad science, 
But at a certain point, it's like, okay, you have an aha moment and you realize, hey, these things are deadly and addictive sometimes. Let's change the way we're practicing. We all had that aha moment about three, four years ago, but some doctors didn't and they just, you know, set in their ways. Well, when we show them where they stand relative to their peers and how many opioid pills they're prescribing after a standard prostatectomy, for example, or hysterectomy or breast biopsy, um, they say, oh, you know what? I don't want to be an outlier. And what we notice is in the data, these doctors auto-correct a lot of times. So that's a civil way to go about doing this. And it's an alive, exciting movement within medicine right now that we're trying to, to foster. I appreciate the the work you're doing with the book, uh, but um, with your research, uh, but essentially, you're, uh, the theme is you're working from the inside. You're a, a surgeon. You're a, a member of this community that you know arguably spends a lot of money. Um, what have you seen as far as alternatives? And we've covered on on Hubwonk uh, concepts like direct primary care, or um, let's say uh, employer funded uh, systems where uh, employers. Uh, ensure their own employees. Uh, these green shoots of uh, what I'll call almost a parallel universe, one independent of hospitals or uh, uh, an insurance-centric system. I, I like to call it almost like an Uber of healthcare, where we're going to build, it, rather than take on a system that I think you cite in your book, uh, the lobbying of the health system is half a billion dollars a year or have you know, right. some extraordinary number. Uh, how can you take on that uh, directly? It, it seems to me uh, it's more likely that we're going to find our way out of this by building a system that is uh, um, a more market-based, more responsive, more uh, uh, patient-centered system. What do you see out there of, of those green shoots outside the system? <laughs> well, the good news is, you know, what I've noticed, like with our work on, we represent patients who have been sued and who can't afford their bills. We go to court with them. I'm their pro bono expert. My students uh, join me and we <clears throat> we win. We've shut down the practice of hospitals suing patients in many hospitals in America. Um, and it was really from sort of bringing it to light in the book, The Price We Pay, and the, me, the journalists that we called um, along the way as we were discovering this stuff. And what I found is that the young generation of my medical students, the residents, young faculty, they are a social justice-minded generation. Social justice is a generational value, and it's beautiful. And what we're seeing right now is a bunch of doctors saying, look, I don't want to see patients in eight to 10 minutes, throw meds at them, and get on this treadmill where a third of the doctors on it right now look burnt out to me. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And remember, these are this is a generation that does not want to live in the suburbs in a big home and own a car. They, they make fun of me as the old guy because I own a car, right? <laughs> this is a generation that wants to live modestly, live in walkable communities, and social justice drives them. They, they want to be a part of something larger than themselves. That's what drives them. And they're walking away from this broken healthcare system, and they're building a new one from scratch. And many times they're saying, we're not going to have anything to do with insurance. The, what we're going to do, we want to, you know, we believe in taking care of um, people who can't afford care. But the way we're going to do it is we're going to go to the local manufacturing plant and do a direct arrangement with them where they will take care of the workers in there and they will 
visit their homes, go through their refrigerator, shop with them, um, look at their medicine cabinets, talk to them about the underlying drivers of illness. And they do this in a way where they've employed a team of young, young people at a college, nurse practitioners, uh, nursing students, administrative assistants from the clinic who answer the phones. And they build a team of people based not on their medical credentials, but on their empathy and their drive. And they uh, train people into health coaches, or what we call patient navigators. And they uh, walk them through uh, these principles that we value as physicians. So what you see, for example, in the Iora, ChenMed models, and many of these new models that are cropping up is, you might have one doctor, but you've got a team of people, of helpers, who are committed to helping this population. Uh, ChenMed, for example, a, a series of 40 plus clinics around the United States and actively growing. They, uh, most of their patients are um, minorities, most of them, um, uh, I think I heard a statistic like half of them are within 200% of the federal poverty line. Um, the chronic disease level is over 60%. And they're growing and they're making money. That's the beautiful thing because they've cut a deal with Medicare to say, look, stop throwing money in this fee-for-service system. Pay us a global rate and we're going to make sure that this population is taken care of. And now they're big enough where they've got a, a sort of return on investment proposition for Medicare. And this is happening with Oak Street, with Landmark, with Iora. It is a massive movement in healthcare. We should all support it. Uh, most businesses, as you know, John, are getting ripped off from their healthcare benefits. And um, it's for a lot of complicated reasons, but typically a business can get with a, a new fresh type of benefits strategist, somebody who thinks differently and if, if it's one of these truly independent ones, it's, you know, not, you know, secretly getting kickbacks on the back end from these products they're selling you, you can save 10 to 25% on your healthcare spend as a business without cutting a single corner on your benefit design. That's the kind of stuff that's fueling these doctors who are redesigning care. Uh, that's very, very encouraging. Uh, we're getting close to our time, uh, the end of our time together. So I want to use uh, the last bits of our our show to talk about a an op-ed uh, uh, that caught my attention back in February. I was in the Wall Street Journal uh, where we were still uh, it looked times looked tar- uh, dark there. We we're just off the peaks of uh, early January of, of COVID nineteen, and we've not talked about COVID in our whole show. So here we go. Um, and it was your assertion that this precipitous drop in cases that had really no explanation. We were, we're still locked up. We're still, uh, you know, in closed quarters. Um, we still can't travel. Uh, we, um, and, and, and the vaccine had really not been rolled out yet. And yet we were, we had very, very few incidences. You asserted that this was attributable to what you believe to be is we're approaching herd immunity independent of our, um, opportunity to get a vaccine. Uh, this caused a bit of a controversy. You've now, we're now about two months Beyond that op-ed, um, you've had a chance to look at the data. Uh, do you still stand by the idea that we really, um, the far, far more of us have had COVID than no, and we're to that point where uh, we've broken the back of the virus, uh, independent of the vaccine, we're, we're, we're galloping towards herd immunity, um, whether we know it or not? 
Yeah, herd immunity definitely has kicked in. So you're describing the 77% decline in daily cases since January 8th. Over six weeks, we had a 77% decline in daily cases. As scientists, you've got to explain that somehow. And it was clear to me when I went to write that op-ed that it was not people suddenly choosing to wear a mask on January 8th. Behavior had not changed that much where we got a 77% reduction. As you said, the vaccine had not kicked in yet to the population. Um, it was very, there's very limited distribution over that time. And um, um, behavior was not that. So what was it? What drove that massive decline? And the reality is that a lot of people have circulating antibodies in their system from prior infection or exposure, even though they had no symptoms. And even those who don't have antibodies, new research from Karolinska in, England, uh, in, the, in Europe and another study from France shows that even without the antibodies, your T cells sometimes are activated and are, can produce neutralizing antibodies and basically confer some immunity. We've seen that with the survivors of the Spanish flu from 1918. They were alive, uh, there were a bunch alive at to in 2005, and four institutions, research institutions in the U.S., studied them, and they found that they were still able to make neutralizing antibodies to that virus nine decades later, even though they didn't have circulating antibodies in their system. And so T cell immunity is real. And if you look at how many people had prior infection based on antibodies and add to that some T cell immunity, you're basically at around half the population had had some immunity prior to the vaccine rollout or you know as the vaccine was getting rolled out this was affirmed actually just recently and i wrote another piece in the wall street journal about it uh, just came out that california did a study that 39 percent of their population has circulating antibodies to covid in la it was 45 percent of of their population has circulated. This is also pretty much pre-vaccine. Vaccine really could not explain more than 1% of it. That study was done a month and a half ago. So what was 45% six weeks ago is likely uh, upwards of 50% now. Herd immunity is not binary. And this is where you're seeing um, a political fight over that article because herd immunity was suggested as a strategy to deal with COVID kind of protect the elderly and then just let it rip. And that became known as the herd immunity strategy. That's why that term is loaded. It was a terrible strategy. I never supported it. Uh, I, I was against that thing from the start. We're talking uh, about Great, Great Barrington strategy, yes. is it? Right, mm -hmm. yes. Now, I, look, I, I think they should be able to voice their opinion. I, I think we used to have healthy conversations in medicine of different points of view. Now we can't. But um, I was against that, but that's where the term herd got, got, became a loaded term. And the reality is it's herd immunity is not binary. It's not all or nothing. It's progressive slowing as fewer people are susceptible in a community. Super spreading events right now are very hard to happen because you don't have as many susceptible people out there. I'm not suggesting we, you know, let up our guard or rip off our masks or have mask burnings or go out there and now let it rip. And that's where, you know, it also became very political because people said, hey, wait a minute, if he's saying that herd immunity is kicking in, you know, maybe he's saying that we shouldn't take this thing seriously. What we're about to witness, and I, I'm, I'm, you can check this prediction in six weeks, when we get to the end of April, when the whole world of scrutiny is on me as to whether or not my uh, prediction is correct, 
and by the way, never mind that Fauci said the same thing to NPR in December, that herd immunity will kick in at the end of March and April. Um, we're going to see a divergence in the data, almost two pandemics, one among older and higher risk Americans. That pandemic is improving mass markedly. We're seeing a plummeting of hospitalizations and deaths. The other pandemic is among young people who are simply last in the vaccine line and are mostly unvaccinated and are out there with a lot of pent up giddy and they're, you know, getting more and more active. And so we're seeing a, a lot of cases among younger people. And so you're going to see while hospitalizations and deaths plummet in April and in a little bit into May, you're going to see cases linger. And those cases will linger among young people who mostly have asymptomatic or mild infections. And you're going to see a national argument about those cases come May. You're going to see some people say, hey, the, the, these cases could flare and create another massive surge. Other people are going to say, hey, wait a minute. Most of the society is immune. These are young people. Most of them are asymptomatic or mild. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll take that uh that prediction, we'll see how it goes and uh, maybe yeah, perhaps we'll get back to you um, and see how it turned out. So we're at the end of time, uh, I have many more questions I wish I had time to ask, but uh, perhaps uh, maybe in the future for your next uh, book, uh, we'll have you back on the show. So thank you very much for uh, for your work as a surgeon, as a researcher, uh, and one who's used his talents to, to make our health system better for everyone. Dr. Macri, thank you for being on Hubwonk. Great to be with you, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your favorite podcatcher. It would help the show if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, if you share us with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments or perhaps suggestions for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.